If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mopac Audio. A note to listeners. The following podcast contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Before we get started, we had a quick request. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast. And to help others find us, we'd be grateful if you'd rate, review, and spread the word. The disturbing things on the tape is they're after me. They're trying to kill me. And I was like, no, man, I think something really happened to her, man. She was out. She was screaming. She had called the police. And the Suffolk County Police basically, they ain't really care. The missing person, in this case, Shannon, worked as a prostitute. The fact uh, in our lifestyle contributed to perhaps some of the delay of getting the ball rolling. On December 11th, 2010, the police are along Ocean Parkway and they find a body. They thought it was going to be Shannon Gilbert. There's a good chance we never would have found any of these girls, but then Shannon Gilbert disappeared. For 17 months, my daughter, Melissa, was missing. We had no idea where she was. We didn't know if she was alive or dead. And they said that they had found female remains, skeletal remains, approximately 24 to 26 years old, four foot nine. Jeff and I just started crying. We knew it was her. My name is Chris Moss. I'm a TV producer whose team spent much of the last three years working to understand what happened in the Long Island serial killer case and who's behind it. In the last two episodes, we explored the life of Shannon Gilbert, the events of May 1st, 2010 that brought her out to Oak Beach, Long Island, and the bizarre story that unfolded in the following months as Shannon's family searched for her. In December of that year, about a mile from where Shannon disappeared, a body was found. And a family in Buffalo, New York, who happened to be watching the news that night, finally had an answer to the question they'd been asking for over a year and a half. What happened to Melissa? This is why I don't like making cheeseburger subs. 
They are the messiest sub to make. I know, I'm not losing. But they're easier to eat than a chicken finger sub. Chicken finger subs are just, right, everything right slides the right off corner. them. Order up. We're at the restaurant seven days a week. Basically, we only close for if somebody in the family passes away because we're a family business. It's actually just four people who work here. Myself, Jeff, Amanda, and my fiance's sister, Diane. When Melissa went missing, it actually was a comfort to be here. There was a few days where I had meltdowns and I was dragged out of here, but other than that, it, you know, it kept me going. There you go, sir, 43.65, you enjoy your day, and I hope to see you back again. This is Melissa's mom and sister, Lynn and Amanda. We met up with them at their small family restaurant on the outskirts of Buffalo, New York. My daughter was Melissa Mary Bartholomew. She was born on April 14, 1985. Melissa's mother, Lynn, and her sister, Amanda, and um, Lynn's boyfriend, Jeff, they are a close-knit family. Again, defying the stereotype of broken homes and, you know, difficult life circumstances. You know, they loved one another and cared for one another. Our family life was pretty good growing up. It was my mom, my dad, my grandparents, my aunt, uncle, and cousins. And every Sunday, we'd meet for family dinner at my grandma's house. And then we'd all sit down and watch a movie together. We'd play a board game. So things were pretty good then. My name's Amanda Funderberg. I'm from Buffalo, New York. And my sister was Melissa Bartholomew. Everybody passed away, and things changed. So my sister and my grandma three months later, and then two, three years after that, then my grandpa died, his mom, my great-grandma, then my aunt had passed away, my great-aunt. She also had lived with us in Alden at one point, so it was just kind of like everybody could wash away once. I think Melissa mostly like wanted to change things about her personality and her outlook. Melissa taught me a lot. She taught me to be independent, that somebody's not always going to be there for you, to be caring, compassionate, but still strong-willed and don't let people walk all over you and you have to work hard for what you want. Here's Robert Kolker, journalist and author of Lost Girls, to tell us about Melissa's early life. When Melissa was growing up in Buffalo, she grew up in a kind of a tough neighborhood, but it, she was with her mother and with her grandparents and everybody worked hard. And Lynn Bartholomew, Melissa's mother, is one of the hardest working people I've ever met. You know, she's been working since she was 15 or 16 years old, since she was in high school and became pregnant with Melissa. My name is Lynn Bartholomew, and my daughter's name is, was Melissa Mary Bartholomew. I was born in South Buffalo. Melissa was born in the same hospital. And it's funny, because the doctor that delivered me delivered her. So that's a little peculiar. <laughs> Lynn was only 16 years old when she had Melissa. And even though she was terrified, Lynn was smart. She knew Melissa's father was not someone to marry. She also knew she had to finish high school. And she did. All while making solid grades, being a good mom, and working evenings washing dishes at a local nursing home that was a 20-minute walk from her house. She did get some help in raising Melissa from her father and mother, and they all lived together for a while. Melissa, she was pretty shy, but she loved people. She loved to cuddle. She loved her family. She would like to sit on the back of the couch and put twist ties in grandma's hair, pretend that she was putting rollers in there. And she was the first grandchild, so that's what she got. <laughs> Melissa was a little spoiled when it came to my parents. 
Eventually, Lynn was able to move out of her parents' house and she raised Melissa, and later her second daughter, Amanda, on her own. Melissa would help Amanda get ready for school when she was a little older. She actually wanted to change diapers. Melissa used to love giving Amanda baths. She taught Amanda how to tie her shoes, how to ride a bike. Yeah, she taught her a lot of things. They were really close. Then Lynn met Jeff, and the two fell in love. Eventually, they would go on to open up a small restaurant in the outskirts of Buffalo. They worked even harder than they'd ever worked before. You know, running your own business is no joke, and they're there 24 hours a day, and Jeff's extended family is there too. And Melissa was there working there briefly too before she moved to New York. Originally, Melissa's dream was to be a lawyer growing up. But then when she started, it turned out to be a little bit bad, and she got into some trouble, and I had to get her in counseling and get her in the system a little bit. She wanted nothing to do with it anymore. <laughs> and then it kind of turned to cosmetology. This is Melissa's younger sister, Amanda. Me and Melissa are nine years apart. Her personality, she was very fun. She was outgoing. She was loud. <laughs> she loved to laugh. But she definitely had a stern side, too. You know, if you were being out of line or not being a good person, you know, she tried to steer you in the right direction and just guide you to be a better person. Yeah, she was just, you know, an all-around great person. Even when she moved to New York City and she had met this girl and she allowed her to move in with her and Melissa came home after working one day and the girl robbed her of all her clothes. And she's like, but it's okay, Mom. She must have needed them more than me. But don't let Melissa's soft side fool you. She was no pushover. Melissa was about four foot nine and a half. <laughs> 95 pounds soaking wet. You know, she didn't take any crap from people. Somebody would start with her, and she'd let them hit her first. That was always my rule. You never hit first. But you just <laughs> don't let them get away with it. And the principal and teachers didn't like that. <laughs> and it continued to get a little bit worse because times were tough in school. So she had to be a little tougher. People would mess with her at school. Like, she had good grades and everything, but she'd still get in fights at school. People would mess with her, and she had to defend herself. So I'm sure people were a lot bigger than her, and she, <laughs> she kept her own. She only had a few real true friends, but... She went to a Buffalo public school, and that was when they used to bus them in from the inner city. So you had to deal with that social group coming in, and it was tough. I think she was messed with because of her size and the neighborhood, like the school she went to was mostly, you know, African-Americans. She was a little white girl, and they picked on her for that. Although she faced a tough school, Melissa didn't let that affect what she was there for. Yeah, she was really smart. She was an A student all through school. She loved history. She loved math. She was great in math. I mean, once Amanda started off in school and I couldn't help with all that new math stuff, Melissa was right there helping her out. She always wanted to help people. She was like a more of a mom to Amanda than a sister. They were best friends. Me and Melissa probably got closer when I was around 12, 13, as I started to become a teenager. And she wanted to really guide me at that point. She would braid my hair, cut my hair. When as I got older, she'd start giving me highlights and stuff like that. And 
whatever she wanted to do, I just did it. Melissa had a hard time staying out of trouble, but then she rediscovered her passion for hair and it gave her a new focus. She was probably like 16 when she started doing like friends hair. And then after she graduated from school, then she went to cosmetology school and got her license and everything. Melissa really had to work through going to Continental Beauty School. I mean, she didn't have a low enough income to go to school for free. The way that it turned out, Melissa and I had to split the student loan because she didn't have enough credit to get a loan. So mom had to help her out. But it worked out because Melissa paid off the student loan in her name and in my name. As soon as she graduated from school, she started working at Supercots. And then she did some side jobs at home. This was a young woman who did really well in school, but did not go to college. Thought she might be a hairstylist in Buffalo and then slowly awakened to the idea that no job cutting hair in Buffalo was going to be able to get her what she wanted out of life, which was what every American wants out of life, you know, to move up. Melissa definitely wanted to open up a salon. She wanted to do hair. She was interested in nails and everything, too, but she wanted to make enough money and come home to Buffalo and open up a salon. By this point, Melissa had moved out of the house and was living with her childhood friend, turned boyfriend, Marcus. Melissa's plan was to move to New York City and open her own salon. And a friend of hers, Marcus, had taken her down to New York City a few times because his uncle had a like a rap studio or something. I didn't like the guy, but that's a mom's thing. And he just, to me, he was a thug. Melissa knew Marcus since she was about 13 years old. I mean, she grew up with him. She obviously trusted him. So if that's what he thought was in her best interest, I'm sure she would have followed along with it. And knowing that good money's gonna be involved and she wanted to provide a better life for herself and for me and my mom. And she met up with this guy, Johnny, that she had told me that he owned a salon. And she said that she had gotten a job there. And she said, Mom, I'm going to move there. Yeah, Melissa just kind of, you know, said that she wanted to move to New York and she was going to make it happen. She was going to find an apartment to live in and everything. And I knew that's what she wanted to do, so we didn't want to really hold her back. Mom wasn't too happy. But 19 years old, what are you going to do? And at, and at that time, Melissa, really, she was kind of living on her own anyway. Her mother didn't want her to go, but who can tell someone that age what to do? She couldn't be controlled. Melissa and Marcus had split up, and she began dating supposed salon owner Johnny. Marcus was her first encounter with New York City. And then later to find out, I really think that he basically sold her to Johnny. The story Lynn and Amanda heard was Melissa moved to New York City to pursue her dream of one day owning a salon. But her new boyfriend, Johnny, AKA Blaze, had another plan for Melissa, working for him. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. 
easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So Melissa's in New York, leading pretty much a, a life that she kept secret from her family. The most she might say is that she was working at a strip club and maybe dancing sometimes, but she certainly never said that she was walking around Times Square at night under the control of a pimp. Melissa's family would find out parts of this story later, but just exactly how Melissa ended up under the control of a pimp is another secret that died with her. But it's worth understanding how it could have happened, how it happened to Kritzia Lugo, Melissa's closest friend during her time in New York. Kritzia's story serves as a terrifying example of how powerful the forces can be that coerce women into prostitution. My name is Kritzia Lugo. I grew up in Long Island, New York. I was friends with Melissa Bartholomew for some years. Kritzia had seen Melissa around, working in the same circles, but she wasn't sure what to think about this loud and brash girl from Buffalo. The first time I really spoke to Melissa, really, really spoke, she was drunk. <laughs> and she smacked me. <laughs> and she, we had seen each other in a bar before that, but that night she, she was a little drunk. But not like disgusting drunk, just like happy drunk. But she did smack me. <laughs> and then she asked me to buy her a cheeseburger. Yeah. And then I looked at her like, what? This was when Melissa was relatively new to sex work, but Kritzia, who was barely 18, had been in it for about three years already, but not by choice. And although we provide warnings for the content of this podcast, it bears repeating here. Kritzia's story, her experience of how she was forced into this world, is especially horrific. Ay, 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 I was 15. Yeah, that's, that's the, that was the day that I was kidnapped. And then, like, everything, ugh, everything in my life after that has been, like, a nightmare. However, before all that happened, Kritzia's life was no dream. I grew up in very not stable conditions. We moved around a lot. We used to go to domestic violence shelters a lot. And my mom would, like, be very badly, like, beating, like, broken bones, face disfigured. Kritzia survived the experience and even excelled in school. She was into fashion and had dreams of becoming a designer. But as high school was starting, Kritzia still had a lot working against her. I just had problems at home, and I was assaulted by someone in the family, and not in the family, but like a close friend of the family. 
And when I spoke about it, I wasn't believed. Not one to stay quiet, Kritzi had brought up the abuse while at school. They took it seriously, and it resulted in Kritzi and her siblings being removed from their home. And they gave us back eventually. It's like there was even more with me and my mom, because now it's my fault that we were removed and taken into foster care, and I just ran away from home. From there, she made her way into New York City and ended up at a shelter for teens and runaways but it was far from the refuge she needed. The place was crowded and chaotic. And one day I left, like around 12 o'clock during the day. And I just needed a break. I just needed to go breathe somewhere. I, I went in a diner to get like a sandwich and I needed 50 cents. And I asked, I don't know why I went outside and I asked someone for 50 cents. And then the, the car was parked across the street. So he said, I'll give you the 50 cents, I'm just go get it. And then me being stupid, I kind of like stood there and he's like, no, come, come. So I walked behind him. In hindsight, Kritzia realizes it wasn't wise to follow a stranger to his car. But in her defense, she was 15 and it was broad daylight on 9th Avenue in Manhattan. So he opened the car door and he got the 50 cents and he gave it to me. And as soon as I turned around, he struck me with a closed fist right here. And then he put me in his car. Once shoved into the back seat, Kritzi is grabbed by two men who quickly put tape over her mouth and bind her hands. And then they take me to New Jersey. They take me to a hotel and they have a whole nice party with me. And after that, they made me take a shower. They make me like fix up my hair and get dressed and they gave me the shoes to wear. This is all so they can sell her to someone they know. And not understanding the arrangement, Kritzia ends up begging this man she sold to for help. But when his true intentions become clear, she puts up a fight. So much so, he ends up returning Kritzia to the sellers. And they made her pay. And I was beat up for like two days. And every time they tried to do it, I used to like fight. And I was so messed up, but I would not stop fighting. Like I was so mad. I'm like, dude, I've been abused my whole life. You're not gonna come abuse me. From there, it seems the men, in an attempt to salvage their losses, ship Kritzia somewhere south. And we just want to interject that if some of the language here, ours and Kritzia's, sounds off, like it's out of some economics lecture, we get it. We struggled with that. It's disturbing. But then we realize there's no easy way to talk about the trafficking of another human being. Again, here's Kritzia. Basically, they kind of sold me but I, I don't really remember too much of, of what. I just remember we got to this place and there was a lot of trees and there was a house and there was a big, big fence, like a brick fence. Like in Puerto Rico, the houses have brick fences. It was a house just like that and they took me in. For reasons that will hopefully become clear, it would be a while before Kritzi even knew where she'd been taken to. And they put us in a room and there were girls there. And like when I say underage, I mean like, pedophilia underage and they love the young girls especially like the nine-year-old and stuff like that they they love that stuff and the house is really nice and there's like a little pool and a little gym and they do your hair and your makeup they fix you up <laughs> and they have like a little nurse doctor practitioner person and they put stuff in your food and every time you eat or drink you get like happy and drowsy 
Chrissia did come to understand a little bit about how the place operated, that she and the other girls were given a rating. And um, every girl, they take your pictures. And then according on your pictures, like you get a score and according to your score, you get like a room. So like I had a really nice room, big bed, like red um, burgundy. And like, that's where the guys would come in. But it was hard, they had to keep me drugged all the time. As far as she could see, there were only a few ways out of this nightmare. Yeah, we couldn't, we weren't allowed to have mirrors. Like girls had tried to kill themselves. So we weren't allowed to have mirrors. Yeah. Just to clarify, mirrors can be broken and pieces can be used to harm yourself in an attempt to take your own life. Luckily, Kritzia found another way out. I didn't come back to New York till I was 17, right before I was 18. They, um, they were tired of me. I used to fight too much. I used to like curse them out and yell. I would break the outfits and not want to wear them. And so I didn't even know I was in Florida until I get back to New York. They brought me with this guy. And when we got to the airport, I stole his bag. <laughs> and I ran. And then he started yelling at me. And I started walking to the TSA counter. And then he stopped. And then I ran. <laughs> and he had money in his bag. And then I think I was, it was right before I was 18, 17. But I didn't meet Melissa maybe eight months after that. This brings us back to what you had heard in the beginning when Kritzi and Melissa first met. The first time I really spoke to Melissa, really, really spoke, she was drunk (laughs) and she smacked me. (laughs) She did smack me and then she asked me to buy her a cheeseburger. This actually won Kritzi over. She realized that even though Melissa was tiny, she was also tough and fearless. And those qualities carried a lot of weight in their world. And she was fun. She was funny. She was always laughing. She had, she was devious. She had this, she used to do things. She was fearless. She was, tell her to shut up and she'll speak more. Like she had this little evil smile. (laughs) And she used to do things that she know pissed people off. But she, I think she felt free. The two became fast friends and worked the streets together supporting and protecting each other, and just helping each other get through the days and even longer nights. And as hard as it could be, Melissa still kept up the front to her family back in Buffalo. Even as she kept this secret, her sister came to visit twice, her much younger teenage sister, Amanda. Melissa and Amanda were so close that when Amanda would get summer break, Melissa would pay her for a plane ride and she would go stay with Melissa in New York City for a month, five, six weeks sometimes. And they go get manicures, pedicures, you know, just kind of treated her little sister like she was a queen. It seemed at the time, at least from Amanda's visits, that Melissa was, you know, at least leading a stable life. She lived in her own place, she paid her own rent. And uh, they went out and had some, you know, regular New York tourist fun while she was there. We'd hang out and go school clothes shopping and get our nails done and just go for walks, go get food, go to the movies, check out Times Square, stuff like that. All the shows and the big theaters and shopping and people singing and painting. A lot of action there. 
Amanda made two summer trips to New York City and was planning a third, but she didn't know things were starting to unravel for her sister. Melissa was tired of giving up so much money to a supposed boyfriend, who in reality was just an abusive pimp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Experiment is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk, Long Island serial killer podcast, was shocked when the news broke of Rex Hewerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, Law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Hewerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the List Podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the List Podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes. And if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Johnny was taking too much of her money and things were slowing down in New York City and Melissa couldn't afford her bills. Like Shannon Gilbert back in episode one, Melissa realized she could make more money by simply posting her own ads for sex work. And in Melissa's case, face less abuse at the hands of a pimp. In theory, at least. Didn't go over too well. He didn't like that. I think he actually beat her up for that. Pretty sure I had somebody beat her up, but I remember she was, like, left in the middle of the street with broken ribs and just, like, left for dead. Johnny had Melissa beat up in an alley because she was trying to break free from him because she realized that she didn't need to give him her money that she was working hard for doing these things that she had to do to survive. So, I know I, it's just weird because, you know, I just from hearing the story, I can like picture her being beat up and that, you know, there's just so many things. 
Melissa was finally able to break free from Johnny, and that did mean more money, but things were far from safe. There was even one time when Melissa came home on the holiday. She always came home around Christmas. And just before she had come home, she said that she was mugged. She said she was walking home from work, and some guy attacked her with a knife, and she grabbed a hold of the knife. And when she got home, she had all these cuts on her hands. At this time, Melissa's mom, Lynn, was still in the dark about her daughter's work in New York. But Melissa's sister, Amanda, had come to learn something closer to the truth, including what happened with the cuts on her hands. But she had promised to keep it all a secret between them. Melissa had said that a client had wanted her to do something and she didn't want to, so she tried to leave and he was trying to stab her and, you know, she tried to fight him off. She had caught open hands and everything like that and she ran across the streets to the hospital. Melissa came with a dream, but after a while, she, she, her heart was broken, and she was just sad, and she just wanted to leave. Melissa's slide down continued, and it included an arrest for prostitution. Kritzi couldn't understand why she stayed in New York City. And, like, it got real for her when she got arrested, because the thing that she told me on the phone was, if I plead guilty, I could go home, and if I plead not guilty, they're going to send me to Rikers. Kritzi implored her to go home, but Melissa didn't want to hear it. Then once she bailed out of jail, Melissa ended up having a breakdown while she was with Kritzia just days later. Because I saw her two days later, and then she was, like, upset, and she sat down on the floor, and the taxis was beeping her hard to move. <laughs> she was just mad. And she put her feet over the curb, and she's like, you know what, I think I'm going to go home. And Tito, she sounded so sad. I'm like, yeah, I'll go home. If you don't need to be here, you don't have to be here. She's like, oh, but I wanted some money. I'm like, yeah, but you've made money and you've wasted money. So if this is not going to be your life, what are you doing? Oh, but so much money and so much work. And I told her, you're not strong enough for this. And then she like cursed me out and like she says, who am I to say what she can or cannot do? Because she was always like that. I think I said to her, if I, like, had a family to go to, I would. And at least you have a family, like, you can go to. Because back then I was, like, broken up with my family. <laughs> and she used to always talk about her sister. From there, Melissa did rebound somewhat. And maybe it was because of her sister Amanda's upcoming visit. Well, in the summer of 2009, Amanda was going to come down to New York again. And she was texting with Melissa a lot about it. We were texting, going over the situation with the plane tickets and how I could get my plane ticket and when it was arriving. And I was going to stay out there for about a month, month and a half with her for the summer. Her sister was just getting ready to purchase her airline tickets. So I had called her on the 8th and I said, you know, Melissa, I need to know. You know, I work all the time. I have to find out when I have to take your sister to the airport. She's like, Mom, I will call you tomorrow. So then on the 9th, nothing. On the 10th, nothing. She always called back that night or the next morning or sent you a text message or left you a voicemail or she would always let you know that she was okay and we knew something was wrong. And that's when Amanda got worried that something had happened. Uh, she went to her mother, Lynn, and 
you know, to Lynn's boyfriend, Jeff, and they tried to raise the alarm that their daughter had become a missing person. And the NYPD was slow to respond, the same way they are with a lot of people who are over 21 and engaged in sex work. So we contacted the 43rd precinct and the desk sergeant was a lady. And I called there and I said, you know, my daughter lives in the Bronx, gave the address, said, you know, we haven't heard from her, told her her age, never said her name, anything. And she's like, ma'am, is she mentally retarded? Is she on any type of psych meds? No, no, no. Well, then she's not missing. She's where she wants to be. She's probably on vacation somewhere. We played this cat and mouse game for three days. The New York City Police Department, every time my mom and my aunt and my mom's boyfriend would get together and they'd try and make the phone calls to see if they can get anybody to go looking for her or just file the missing persons report. They would just ignore them, hang up on them. and They don't seem to think, well, that person's not really missing the way that another person might be missing. It's a double standard that really hits all of these families at one point or another. After three days of dealing with the NYPD and their lack of action, Melissa's family reaches out to a contact in the Buffalo Police Department. Finally, my fiance's brother got a hold of somebody from downtown. I think it was Tim Howard, and he called in a favor to one of the police stations in New York City, and the officer's name was Bill McGrory. And he went to my daughter's house unofficially and checked it out. And Melissa had cats and he saw that they hadn't been attended to. So he went to the police station and he officially filed a police report that she was missing. So the family had a missing persons report filed. But after a few weeks went by, they still felt like the NYPD wasn't doing much to find Melissa. The only way the police start to take it seriously is when Amanda starts to get some mysterious phone calls from Melissa's telephone. The caller ID said it came from Melissa's cell phone. Amanda was excited. She thought, finally, my sister's calling me. I was at my cousin's house. We were just hanging out, watching TV, and all of a sudden my phone rings and it says Melissa, and I hurry up and I run outside to be in a quiet area. And, you know, I answer the phone and there's a man on the other line. It's not my sister. And I'm thinking maybe somebody found her phone or found her, knows where she is. And they just started prodding and, you know, knew it wasn't the person that it was supposed to be. It wasn't Melissa and it wasn't anybody that cared about her or knew her but it seems as if the person making the calls is smart enough not to be traced, not to stay on the phone long enough. They've watched enough TV shows that they know that they need to cover their tracks. He always kept it under that minute. He was smart. He knew what he was doing. Like after a certain amount of time, like, you know, you can track it then. He would always make sure he hung up in time. According to Melissa's friend, Critzia, the NYPD eventually looked into these calls. And the police say, they said it was hard to trace the calls because it was in Madison Square Garden and there are too many people or too many towers or too many cell phones, so I don't really know. But it's, it was scary. Outside of family and law enforcement, Amanda hasn't talked to many people about the calls, but she went over what she remembers with us in hopes that somehow something might come from it, maybe even some answers. His voice is very monotoned. He had a slight accent, but not really. Nothing too strong. I think he tried to like hide it. Seemed like he was mid-aged. 
He tried to control his voice and disguise it a little, I think. It seemed to Amanda that the man was being deliberate with his voice, flat and monotone, as a way to conceal what accent he might actually have. You could just tell when someone's like faking it. Like if I came in here and talked with a Southern accent, you know it wasn't really a Southern accent. That was something I didn't really pay attention at that point. I was just kind of asking questions and I was waiting for the answers and, you know, trying to hear maybe in the background if she was in the background or anything like that. And the big question is, why Amanda? Why did this guy call Amanda and nobody else? She wasn't listed in Melissa's phone as my sister. She was just in her phone as Amanda. So the only thing that I can think is my daughter being as feisty as she was, knowing that her sister was supposed to be coming to town, that she was pleading to this guy to let her go and said, you know, my sister Amanda is coming to see me. I need to be set free. I want to say he called four to five times. The voice was always the same type of things that he was saying were the same. He'd lead on from something that he had already said. He just called her a whore, said what he did to her, things like that. But he knew, like, some things about me, so obviously he had her phone, so there was probably pictures in it. He called me a half-breed, like, obviously, so you know I'm mixed, so. For the sake of an audio podcast, Amanda's mom is white and her father is black. And the phone company wasn't being very helpful. Like, they didn't want to help with her phone records. We had said she was missing at the time. The family wanted Melissa's phone records in hopes they'd offer clues, like where he was calling from, or had he called any other numbers. But because it was her account, they wouldn't do it. The detectives were there in the Verizon store with us, and they're like, no, we need a warrant. At the same time, the family was scrambling to figure out how they could record any future calls, should he happen to call back. Not every phone has, like, the capability of recording your phone call, and, like, my phone didn't have that, so we actually had a detective give us one of his old phones that I could use. This is because, again, the phone company refused to help. They wouldn't loan them a phone with recording capabilities. Finally, someone in the Buffalo PD came through with a phone that would work. The funny part of getting that phone is it was a little too late. The last call that came in was August 27th, and the phone she didn't get until, like, the 29th or 30th of August. It's important to realize that, unlike the movies where an array of cops and recording equipment are hanging out waiting for the next call, Lynn and Amanda had no idea when or if another call would even be coming. He kept just stringing me along, and, like, the last phone call he had said, you know, maybe... I'll come tell you where her body is. That was the only thing, but he had already stated that she was dead, so at that point it wasn't really hope of finding her alive. And I had to tell my mother. Back when all these phone calls began, Amanda was only 15 years old. And here you have a girl that's basically just going through puberty, and she's got all these questions of her own about life, and now she's got this crazy man torturing her. And he's got her sister, and she has no idea what's going on. It's just really tough for her. I don't, I don't know if she's ever going to be able to really fully recover from this and move on. So Melissa Bartholomew disappears in the summer of 2009 from, you know, by all intents and purposes, she disappears from the Bronx because that's where the last time anybody sees her anywhere. Maybe she has a date in Long Island, maybe she doesn't, we can't be sure. 
So once Amanda started receiving the calls from Melissa's phone, the NYPD started taking the case seriously. They looked into the last night in July that anyone in New York City had talked to Melissa the night she disappeared. The rumor they heard, she had a well-paying John out in Long Island. And I know that she was home in her apartment and she went outside and she was waiting for a car and whoever person it was picked her up and they brought her to Long Island. And according to phone records, this matches up with the last call Melissa made that night, one where she checked her voicemail, a call that pinged off a cell tower in Massapequa, Long Island. Law enforcement went out and asked about Melissa at a few hotels near that cell tower, but nothing came of it. And by the time the calls end, uh, they're basically back at square one, not knowing where Melissa is or what condition she's in, what's happened to her. And they won't know for another year and a half. This is the hardest thing that our family has ever had to deal with. We're a close-knit family. She was just such a wonderful, intelligent person. And I just don't know how she got mixed up in this stuff. She wasn't somebody that was thrown away. We all loved her. She knew that she had somewhere to come. You know, we were trying to be there for each other, but it was definitely hard. Still trying to go along with our normal daily routines. You know, she obviously still had to go to work. She had bills to pay, and we were trying to pay bills for my sister and keeping her phone on. And my sister used to pay my phone bill, so then my mom had to take over that. So it was a lot for both of us. She was just like this cute little girl. And that, that like, haunts me. Sometimes I, I dream about that. Sometimes I dream what's happening to me. I have lots of other dreams, like nightmares. Melissa, here she goes missing in July. We had a benefit to try and raise money so we could hire private detectives. And 10 days after the benefit, my mom was mowing the lawn and she had a massive heart attack and died immediately in the backyard. So here, my best friend, person I needed the most to help me through this wasn't there anymore. I think if I had a chance to do anything different, when Amanda went to New York City for a visit, I think that I would have gone with her. Maybe if I would have done that, maybe things would be different, but maybe not. It's, everything's just so crazy. I just don't understand anything anymore. I just want it all to end. But the torture of not knowing Melissa's fate would continue for her family from 2009 into 2010. But as that year wound down... I believe it was December 11th or something like that. I just remember it was late at night and we were actually watching the live feed on TV and my mom like saw the first skull that they showed and she just like felt like that was Melissa and that was because she was the first body that they found. So we literally saw her remains on TV. On December 11th, 2010, basically a year and a half after Melissa disappears, the police are along Ocean Parkway and they find a body which turns out to be Melissa. They thought it was going to be Shannon Gilbert, who had disappeared just seven months earlier, uh, just a few miles away from that location. The next day, that section of Ocean Parkway is shut down as police and crime scene investigators work to remove the remains of Melissa Bartholomew. 
and John Malia, the canine officer who made the discovery, had returned to help. It was sometime during this recovery effort that Officer Malia decided to wander off a few hundred yards down the parkway, where he almost literally stumbled across another body. Of course, that kicked off a more extensive search, and later that same day, they found two more. The reports say they're shrouded in burlap, just like the first set. And they all are female, and they're all within sort of a tenth of a mile of each other, all along the same side of a desolate stretch of Ocean Parkway in Long Island. All Suffolk County police really know is that none of them are Shannon Gilbert, and they're dealing with a serial killer. Coming up on Lisk, Long Island serial killer. I talked with them all. They all said, I knew as soon as I saw it on television that my daughter or my sister had to be one of those women on the beach. I called her sister and her freaking cousin out in Ohio first before I called the detective. That's how, how shitty of a detective he was. Because he just, he didn't seem to believe me. We're nothing to him. You just heard the third of six episodes of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer. If you enjoyed the show, we ask that you please tell your true crime friends to listen, review, and subscribe. This episode was written, produced, and recorded by myself, Chris Moss, Jonathan Beal, and Shannon McGarvey. Editing and musical composition by Blake Maples. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzarden, Jonathan Beal, and me, Chris Moss. Brought to you by Mopac Audio. For more information, including exclusive photos and videos, go to liskpodcast.com. L-I-S-K podcast.com. If you suspect human trafficking, contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline by texting HELP to 233-733.